Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. So this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Graham Hatful. Uh, he's the Eberly Family Professor of Biotechnology, HHMI Professor, uh, dealing with phages and tuberculosis at uh, University of Pittsburgh. So Graham, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. Tell me about your research. What is it about? Uh, we're interested in many different aspects of bacteriophages. Um, bacteriophages are simply viruses that infect bacteria. Um, and we find them fascinating in a multitude of ways. And we explore and try to understand them and to exploit them. So the research program is very much that I would see within the realms of the exploration and the exploitation of these bacteria. Um, I saw a video of one bacteriophage that was attacking an E. coli, and it looked like a moon lander. It, um, they had these tail fibers that, you know, adhered it to the surface, and it came close, and then it, like, screwed itself in, like a corkscrew, and injected its, uh, you know, its genetic payload in through, a, like, a long tube. It was amazing. It looked like a moon lander. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. So what... Um, which bacteria do you focus on and which phages? Do they have names or is it more of a general treatment? Okay, so we, we have focused... Um, so for many years, we focused just on bacteriophages that infect a group of bacteria called the mycobacteria. And um, we have sort of expanded that a little bit, but we still remain uh, sort of focused on bacteria that are related to those in that group. The reason why we focus on those is because the mycobacteria include several um, important human pathogens. Um, two of the key ones, I would add, uh, I think, are mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the causative agent of human TB, uh, a huge global health uh, concern. Um, and the second is a, is a bacterium called mycobacterium abscessus, uh, which is more um, of a pathogen that's found in um, patients with cystic fibrosis, for example. Um, and so they're important bacteria. And we study the phages in part because we're interested in the phages and partly because we're interested in seeing how they might be useful for you know, both sort of understanding and characterizing and studying the pathogens, uh, but also thinking about potential therapeutic intervention. Yeah, tuberculosis has been with people for what thousands of years or maybe even more yeah it's a it's a you know it's a relatively old disease but it's also amazingly widespread um most people that get infected with the organism actually don't get sick um at least not immediately and that's good news because about a third of the entire world's population are infected with this bacterium called mycobacterium tuberculosis um but still in a large number of people um they get very serious infections, life-threatening infections, and mycobacterium tuberculosis kills about you know, 1.5 to 1.7 million people a year. 
Um, so it's actually a really nasty pathogen from a from a, a global perspective, even though from a US perspective and a, and a, a developed world, um, it's much less of a problem than it used to be um, because of effective. So you're targeting the, uh, <clears throat> the mycobacterium itself since you're studying phages um, and they kill the my- mycobacterium and work with it probably in other ways. Um, how many different phages do you think predate um, TB, first of all, and um, how do you even know which ones to concentrate on? Yeah, so um, so that, there's, a, there's a wrinkle that I would add, which is in the, all the work that we've done with the phages, we've, we've adopted a strategy of trying to use somewhat more uh, related but, but friendlier types of bacteria to use in order to study the phages. So mycobacterium tuberculosis itself uh, even though it's really important as a pathogen, is, you know, it grows very, very slowly. It takes days and days or weeks to grow in the lab. And of course, it's a pathogen. It's kind of nasty to work with. So we, we kind of take the sneaky step of, of, of sidestepping and using a relative, uh, which has the, the name Mycobacterium smegmatis. And that bacterium is relatively fast growing. Uh, it only takes a few days to grow. Um, and it's a non-pathogen. And so we use that as a surrogate. Um, so using Mycobacterium smegmatis, we, and that's the we is a rather large group of people here, which I can explain in a minute, have isolated or oh, probably 10,000 individual bacteriophages that infect that particular strain. And we have have the genome sequence information for about 1,800. So pr- pretty substantial collection. We know that only some of those phages also infect mycobacterium tuberculosis. But having gotten this kind of large collection using kind of a friendly strain to you, um, it puts us in a really good position to kind of to figure out which ones infect TB, which ones do, which ones don't, and why, and what determines those parameters. Uh, so we, we, we end up getting a, a, a broader picture. And in terms of kind of understanding the bacteriophages, that's particularly useful. So you said there's 10,000 different phages? Yeah, <clears throat> that, well, we've, that... yeah we've isolated 10,000 different phages. I mean, they're, you know, so I, I should also emphasize that when I say different, um, I think of things as being different if they're not the same, okay? And so there's only one way of being the same, which is you're simply identical to, if you compare two things, they're identical, they're identical. If they're different, they can be different in lots and lots of different ways. They could have just a few base pairs different out of the 50 or so thousand in their genome, uh, all the way through to being completely different and having no sequences uh, in common between a, a pairwise comparison. And in fact, so if we look at the 1800 or so for which we have complete genome sequence, we see that entire spectrum. It's very rare for us to find two phages that are exactly the same, but we have lots of examples of phages that differ by a few nucleotides or by thousands of nucleotides, stretching all the way through to being completely unrelated. And so the diversity overall is really quite, quite impressive. There's a large number of, mm. sort of you know, completely different types of phages, even though they all infect exactly the same strain of bacteria that we've used for the for the isolation yeah this is really interesting do you designate some of them quasi species like what's what's the nomenclature that is developed around phages yeah it's um there's there's some uh, differences of opinion in, in how uh you do phage taxonomy um and so it's it's complicated right and 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 
um, what we don't see, we would claim in these detailed analyses that what we don't see is sort of well-defined and distinct and non-overlapping groups from a genome sequence. Um, in other words, we, can def- we could definitely take two particular phages and compare them and conclude that they're completely different. Um, and so we would think of those as it were in different groups. And just from a, a convenience point of view, we put them into groups, we call them clusters. Um, but just because phages in one cluster are generally unrelated to phages in a different cluster doesn't mean that you don't find um, uh, examples where phages share just a few of their genes or you know, maybe 10% of their genes, and then some will share 20% of their genes, and some 30 or 40 or 50. And so you find this entire spectrum of relationships. And so what that looks to us is that biologically, you know, it kind of looks like there's a continuum of diversity. Um, It doesn't mean that you isolate all the various components of that diversity at the same frequency. So you get more of some types, as they seem, than others. But, but it means that any taxonomy that you do, um, even the, the taxonomy of convenience that we do by putting these into clusters, is exactly that. It's a taxonomy of convenience. Uh, it helps us converse about the phages and to group them and, and to take groups and to study them. Um, but the underlying biology is we think it's a, it's a continuum that comes from these things constantly exchanging their genes in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways and putting to them together in, 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 in new, new genetic combinations and, in fact, new genes. Um, could you call this the microbiome of the bacteria? I mean, it is a, you know, a micro-sized object itself, but could you call it a phageome? Like when the bacteria is in a context, what do you call all the phages that are in and around it? Yes, you said, we, 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 don't, we, we don't tend to generally use the term phageome, but you could... Um, and certainly people have used the broad term virome to, to describe all of the viruses in a particular community. Um, but but it, it would be, it would be you know, correct and appropriate, I think, if you wanted to refer to the entirety of phages in a particular community, you could call that a phage. How, you know, generally at a high level, do you envision that, you know, this um, smegmatist inter- interacts with its phageome? It, um do you believe it contributes to the smegmatis's, um, I mean, immunity or um, library of genetic information that it could use in certain contexts to adapt? You know, does the bacteria exchange with certain phages uh, genetic material, or is do they just predate and attack? You know, all the phages attack the bacteria. Yeah, so I think that um, we would see as we think about the dynamics of how the bacteriophages. Um, interact with the bacteria we're obviously looking at the phages that infect these mycobacteria but it's a but it's just a model system and and i'm and i think that the things that we find and understand from that tend to be uh, applicable to other phage and bacterial systems so what's going on right is is that in nature you have these bacteria that are being infected by their their phages and Often that results in in replication of the bacteriophage and death of the bacterium, right? And because of that, you know, death is a de- death doesn't have a really sort of robust evolutionary future to it, right? And so there's a really strong selection for bacteria to find ways 
to not be dead, right? To survive the infection. And so this process of becoming insensitive or, or becoming resistant to the phages is something that, that must happen uh, very uh, sort of effectively, right? Just for the bacteria to survive. And at the same time, the phages have to co-evolve so they can find a way of either infecting the resistant bacteria or to do a sidestep and go and find some different bacterium that they can infect. So it's important that that dynamic be, be maintained, right? For, and, and for probably billions of years, because if it didn't, you'd either have all the bacteria winning or you'd have all the phages winning, and then you'd only have one and not the other. And so those dynamics, we think, are, you know, some of the most interesting aspects um, in, in all of biology, basically, right? And, and um, not only interesting, but useful. And so uh, the ways in which bacteria become resistant or to survive that phage attack has given rise to, I think, two of the big biotechnological tools over the past uh, you know, few decades. Certainly the restriction enzyme system that used to cut up pieces of DNA and put them back together again. Um, restriction enzymes are simply a phage defense mechanism. And the other one, which, which is, has, you know, is quite well known, I think, is the CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas systems. Um, a great tool for doing genetic engineering in all sorts of organisms, but its natural place is in bacteria, and what it does for the bacteria is to provide a, a, a defense against phage attack. And so we, we think that, that there's an enormous amount of interesting biology that is yet to be understood with tens, hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of different types of these defense systems, uh, and probably an equal number of, of uh, anti-defense systems that phages use in order to to counteract, to fight back, if you like, and to regain or try to regain uh, the the upper hand in this big microbial battle. Do you think that, um, I mean, again, besides lysing the, uh, the bacteria, getting in there, multiplying and exploding it, what other major roles do phages seem to play, or is that even contemplated? Yeah, so, the, so I think one of the things about phages in general that are maybe not sort of that well understood um, is that although many phages do this process of infecting their bacterial host and replicating and killing it, a large proportion of phages are what we would refer to as temperate, meaning that they actually have a, they make a, they have a choice when they infect a, a, a cell and they make a decision as to whether to go through this replicative process or alternatively to shut down that process and to essentially sneak into the bacterium, um, sneak their phage DNA inside the chromosome of the bacterium and sit there for many, many generations of bacterial growth. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Essentially just going along for the ride. That process is referred to as lysogeny. Um, and uh, the, the phage DNA, once it's integrated in the bacterial chromosome, is referred to as a prophase. So this might sound like some kind of funky, weird kind of side thing that phages, but in fact, it's very common. So if you look in bacterial genomes and go and try to hunt down 
these prophages, which you can do computationally, but bioinformatically. Most bacteria carry one or more prophages in there. So this is by far from a rare event. This is an extremely um, common event. And phage DNA and phage genes are a common part of bacterial, you know, bacterial DNA and important contributors to their physiology. And so over the past few years, we've learned a lot about how phages contribute to the growth of the bacteria in ways other than simply killing them. Some phages carry toxin genes, the kinds of genes that that make you sick. The reason why E. coli in contaminated hamburgers makes people sick and kills, you know, kids especially, is because those pathogenic E. coli uh, strains are actually carrying bacteriophages. And it's the phages which contribute the toxins, which actually cause you harm. And so this is, this is, this is a fairly common part of, of, um, of the microbial sort of d- uh, dynamics and the way these microbial communities uh, interact in this, in this really sort of intimate way. So for, um, for E. coli, when it makes people sick, as you said, um, the phages that, uh, that cause E. coli to be able to make people sick, um, what form is their, is their DNA or RNA? And is it, uh, is it in the prophage form? Has it fully integrated into the E. coli? Can you tell? Yeah, so, it's, so it, I, I, it, it's turned out to be quite complicated, I think, be, simply because you can find examples of different ways in which that interaction happens. So there are examples where the phage DNA sitting in the bacterial chromosome can express those toxin genes and confer that property of virulence or pathogenicity to, the, to that bacterium. But there are other instances where the phages appear to actually make the toxin when they're undergoing replicative and, and so-called lytic uh, growth or, 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 or sort of reproduction. And so there's, this is part of the wonderful world of uh, bacteriophages is that you can find pretty much every variation on these themes once you begin to look, right? And, and in fact, the whole phage world is so understudied that, that we've almost certainly missed the, 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 the enormous variety of ways in which these interactions occur um, and with, you know, important and I think profound consequences for how this community of microbes influences the environment and our human health. So if you look at a phageome, what, what major themes do you see? What minor themes do you see? I know it depends on context, but have you have you looked at it in that way? Have you looked at you know the smegmatis or E. coli, let's say, and looked at its phageome, sequenced it, and then put it in different contexts? You know, you have smegmatis and uh, I don't know, or let's say E. coli in a mouse, and the mouse yeah. is sick, or E. coli in a different context, and then you look at its phageome in these different contexts and these different hosts. What kind of differences do you think you'd see? What would predominate? What would change? Yeah, so so we haven't done a lot of those kinds of studies, and you know, for a long time, they've been complicated by the fact that if you if you do um, if you take metagenomic approaches um, to study these virums, so if if for example you said, okay, I'm going to take a whole bunch of uh, I don't know this particular sample, and I'm going to purify just the phages and sequence just those, um, what you tend to find, or at least people have found for for a long time. Is, is huge numbers of different sequences 
and a great deal of difficulty in putting them together into complete genome. And so it gives you some, uh, it gives you a profile, but it doesn't give you complete genome. And so, um, you know, others, other people have done more of those types of studies than, 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 than we have. You can certainly, when you do that, people see changes in those profiles depending on the types of bacteria that are present, for example. And you see variations depending on the experimental system, whether it's mice or, or human uh, gut, uh, gut microbiome. Um, you know, so, so in some senses, those are important and interesting questions, although we've sort of avoided them for the most part, mostly because we've been interested in, in trying to think about the relationships and the evolution in terms of the complete genomes of a phage. So if you have the complete genome of a phage and you can see it in its entirety and you, can, you have a bunch of them and you can compare them, then you can begin to see exactly the types of events that have occurred, evolutionarily uh, occurred, in order to exchange genes, make new genomes, etc. So that's mostly where we've, where we've focused on, although all of the events that give rise to that are things that are going on naturally and therefore are going to influence what you see when you do these kinds of um, virome metagenomic types of studies. But can you see some of the major themes? You know, if I'm a, if I'm a mouse and I'm infected by a certain bacteria and then something happens to me and now I'm really stressed and you know, I'm not doing well as the host, does the the phageome of the bacteria change profile from being, you know, lytic to lysogenic or vice versa? Does the bacteria all of a sudden take on a different characteristic? Like, you know, if you, I wonder if the phageome is leading or lagging in terms of influencing bacteria's behavior when it's inside a host, for instance. Yeah. So, so, so I I think, so, so both of those types of things happen, I think. Right. And um, again, it's not been an area of our particular focus, but, you know, some, some, some of our colleagues have, for example, looked at um, how the proportions of phages in a community that are either lytic versus temperate, right, that can either form lysogens or can't, that, that varies depending on the community. It depends on the density of the bacteria, for example, uh, and the growth of the bacteria. And so the, 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 the phages can, under certain, certain circumstances, absolutely drive the community of the bacteria that are present, and you, that could be in a mouse, but then there are other circumstances where the bacteria could essentially get ahead of the phages and are essentially determining what that microbiome looks. And so this sort of, I mean, it's a good point, but it sort of emphasizes how complicated these dynamic interactions are, right? They're sort of battling each other all the time. And, and it depends on how and when and where you look and what your perspective is as to how the communities fluctuate one relative. Well, um, how faithful is the role of a given phage too? If it's normally, um, you know, lysogenic for a certain bacteria, does it tend to go lytic at the drop of a hat? You know, if it's lytic, does it stay lytic? Any idea of, um, you know, yeah, so so that's a good, so that's a good question. So um, so phages that are so generally phages that are lytic, or let's call them obligatorily lytic. That's all they can do is infect, replicate, kill the cell. Um, they're probably just going to stay like that for the most part in their evolutionary history. 
Whereas phages that are temperate um, have the ability to, as we said, can hide away in the bacterial genome and can just replicate there for many, many generations and, and don't need to undergo littered growth, except perhaps periodically, um, as a, if you like, we would think of it as a gut check for them on their, on their integrity and um and then they can re-lysogenize right and and so there's we i I think it's tempting to speculate that you know lysogeny is is probably a very old kind of uh, an evolutionarily very old kind of process um and temperate phages can become they can lose their ability to do that so they become obligatorily lytic but i think that you can also sort of speculate that that obligatorily lytic lifestyle might not have a good evolutionary future to it either, simply because of this dynamic that once you've killed all of your bacterial hosts and you've got nothing else to replicate it, you're essentially done, right? Whereas the mere fact that temperate phages don't kill that, they form lysogen, the hosts survive, is really just kind of a sneaky way of getting uh, evolution uh, sort of longevity. Well, there, I guess there's different levels of lysogenic behavior where there's a point at which the, uh, you know, the phage or prophage cannot return to an independent virion form, or does it always seem to reserve the capacity to, you know, to come back out in virion form and then be lytic later on? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most of them can, but that doesn't mean that there aren't examples that have lost the ability. It's just that, if you're a prophage um, sitting, as it were, like a nascent phage sitting in a bacterial genome, once if key parts of that get lost, you know, genes, if genes get lost that it absolutely needs to replicate, then, then almost certainly what happens is that once you start losing some genes, everything else becomes basically irrelevant. And so they tend to get cleaned out. And if you look in bacterial genomes, you, you do find sort of bits of phage genomes that are still left after that process has happened. But, but because most temperate phages can at some frequency um, come out and go through lytic growth and then essentially go back in, um, there's this constant kind of gut check uh, to make sure that it's got all of its bits in, you know, it's got all of its parts so that it can, uh, it can continue to do that process and essentially maintain its integrity uh, using that, that mechanism. So if you're going to do um, phage therapy, let's say to help people that have, you know, infections with tuberculosis, what, knowing what you know now, how would you go about it? And is it safe or could it be fraught with complication because of the dynamics of the phage? Yeah. So that, so, um, so phage therapy is a, is a, the use of the therapeutic use of phages is a very old idea. Um, and it's one that's had something of a checkered history. Um, in the sense that I think it is thought to have shown considerable promise, but it's not always obvious how and if that promise can be realized. So we are interested in, in the potential therapeutic use of phages for tuberculosis, but we've been involved more directly in, in trying to see if we can use phages therapeutically for patients that have these infections with this organism called Mycobacterium abscessus. And, um, so we published a paper just over a year ago where it's really a case study of a patient, a young girl uh, in London who had cystic fibrosis, a double lung, lung transplant, and then had this 
it's mycobacterium abscessus infection. It was just really resistant to a lot of antibiotics. And, um, and of course, uh, she's pretty immunocompromised because of the need to take the, the drugs that will um, maintain the new lungs. Um, and so she did very well with the new lungs and, and got relief from some of the principal uh, aspects of the cystic fibrosis in terms of pulmonary uh, function, but then got this disease with this infection. And, and uh, she was essentially sent home on palliative care because they ran out of options for ways to treat the infection. And so we were able to um, screen that particular strain and to find some phages in our collection that, that efficiently infect and, to, and kill that strain. Um, it turns out that was not an easy process because these are, turns out to be a relatively rare types of phages to find, but we're able to get three of them. We combined them into a cocktail, and then we, we went in with a therapeutic intervention uh, for which she's done very well and has essentially returned pretty much to, to an, uh, a, a normal routine. Um, so that's, that's, you know, it's one example of a case study where, where there was a good uh, a successful intervention, and we've been interested in 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 pursuing that both for Mycobacterium abscessus, but of course uh, it's relevant to thinking about how you might do it in TB as well. In terms of safety, uh, both in our, this study and in other studies, safety has usually not turned out to be a problem. Phages are very well tolerated, and of course, and I think as you were suggesting in the question, they're in us. The phages are in our bodies all the time. So giving some new additional phages, it's not like there's just something completely new that our bodies haven't seen before. And also, you know, phages are just natural biological agents. And so they don't come with this uh, sort of chemical toxicity that you often find in antibiotics. Part of the problem with treating, with using antibiotics for some of these infections is you have to take the antibiotics for months or years uh, at a time. And the toxicity can become just uh, completely in, uh, uh, intolerable. And so that's where it opens up a, an avenue where phages may be able to be particularly useful for patients in those, uh, in those circumstances and with those types of infections. So there's a lot that we need to learn about uh, how that process works. Um, but I think there is some interest in, in, in if we can get the science right, um, we may be able to understand more how and when and, and, and in what ways uh, those therapies can be used more. So to do a phage therapy, would you, for instance, pick three highly lytic but very different acting phages for a particular bacteria? Because then it's less likely that the bacteria is going to be able to modify itself to counteract the action of all three, let's say. Would that be an idea for phage therapy? Yeah, so, so for, for this particular patient that I just mentioned, we did use a cocktail of three phages. Um, and, but we, in terms of their sublytic properties, we had to do that in a particular way. And so um, much as we've talked about how abundant and how lots of fit there are phages, and we know a lot, it's still true that for any one particular strain of bacteria, you may actually have very few phages that are really useful or effective against that strain. And that was true in this particular case. And so when we did our initial screen for phages, we found one phage that seemed to be quite lytic and actually kills quite nicely. Uh, the other two phages, what we did was we, 
because it's all that we had. We didn't have any other lytic phages to, to, to use. We had one that we discovered. The other two, we used phages that uh, we had characterized for some time. We understood quite a bit about their biology. And although they're naturally are temperate phages and can form lysogen, we essentially used our genetic engineering tools that we've developed to be able to go in there and to engineer the genomes, essentially to edit the genomes, to remove the specific genes that the phages need to have that temperate. So having removed them, um, those phages now become lytic and obligatorily lytic. They don't form lysogens. They kill the bacteria efficiently. So we simply combined all of those three into a cocktail and use that therapy. Wait, how, how do you take a phage that's normally lysogenic and make it uh, more lytic? Well, we 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 had uh, we we knew from our studies and from from much older studies that there's one gene in particular. It's usually called the phage repressor, which phages temperate phages absolutely need in order to form life and so we knew which genes confer that function because we had dissected and understood and sort of you know just picked apart these phages so that we understood how they did that and then we could go in with our genetic engineering tool and specifically snip out that particular gene that repressor gene and having removed it the phage essentially has no access to the formation of lysogens anymore. We've deprived them of that uh, functionality, uh, and they're simply left with no alternative other than to go through this lytic um, killing type of cycle. Interesting. So I guess if you change the conditions of, let's say, a bacterial host, that uh, some phages that were lysogenic now will be lytic because they really don't have uh, any other alternative? Yeah, so... Um, so what, so what we were doing was engineering the phage genomes themselves in the, and we do it during their normal process of, 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 of uh, lytic growth. But, but, it's a, um, but you're right that if, if you had a, a reliable and reproducible way of efficiently getting temperate phages as natural residents of bacterial genomes to go through lytic growth, then they would end up killing the, the bacteria. Right. And um, there's probably too much variation amongst different strains of bacteria to be able to do that as a routine therapy. But we have certainly contemplated that type of approach as a way of developing new types of drugs that would essentially encourage those kinds of behavior. How do you tell if um, a phage is going to be very good at being lytic? I mean, are, are phages that are normally lytic, you think, better at it or... Is it like, you know, the lysogenic ones, if you piss them off or if you re-engineer them, then they're the most effective lytic ones. Are you able to, to characterize which are the best candidates and why? Yeah, it's, it's so so in, in, in practice, what we do is it's all done empirically, right? We, we just test them in the lab to see how they grow uh, and how efficiently they kill. Um, just take bacterial cultures and then we add the different types of bacteriophages to them, incubate them for a while. And then we simply ask who, who, if anybody, has survived by just looking microbiologically to see who, who, who is who's still alive. And and what happens when you do that is is that that whole process varies enormously from phage to phage. And so sometimes there are phages that are look as though they're going to be really good lytic phages. Um, 
maybe in some bacteria, like for example, in smegmatis, they may look like they, they kill very nicely. But when, then, when you test them in some strain of Mycobacterium obsessus, it looks like they just don't kill as efficiently for some reason. Um, and so you, you get this whole variety of phenotypes. And, and quite honestly, we just don't understand what all controls the outcomes of those kind of experiments. And certainly there's, there's examples, we have examples where there are phages that we've converted from being temperate phages into lytic phages. And now those, you know, newfound lytic phages behave just as well or better than other things that we that we, we would think of as being lytic phages, right? And so um, this is it's a kind of a great example of you know if you you can you it's easy to see when you really don't understand something when the when all of your predictions become <laughs> uh, unreliable essentially, and that happens a lot in the phage. So what do you think is going to be? Um... I don't know, in the next few years with your research or, you know, with colleagues, where do you think the, the breakthroughs will be? Are you singularly focused on TB or is it more of a general uh, mechanism you're trying to create to, to treat diseases? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, at the, the, the general approach that we take to do, doing our science is that we are really driven by um, we're just doing basic curiosity-driven science. We're really trying to and uh, figure out those elements and aspects of the biology that we don't understand and exploring them deeply so that we so that we do understand and 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 as we go through that process um we have a degree of faith if you like that from that process of basic research are likely to emerge um the opportunities for translations and utility and so that's that's what we've done and what many basic scientists do you know, over a, over a number of years, and and so in general, that I think has been a productive approach for us. We've we've learned a lot. Um, we understand things much better. And even though we're not sort of really driven by the translations and the utilities, uh, it's very easy to see how they have emerged, both in terms of these sort of therapeutic interventions uh, and just the development of sort of tools and genetic tools that advance the field. And so. That's going to be our continuing um, drive for the next few years. And, and to give one example of something that we're particularly interested in, uh, as we've treated this one uh, patient in the case study that I described with a therapeutic intervention, um, we, we're now interested in the question as to whether that is, can be broadened to have a therapy for other patients with similar types of and so we've received from uh, uh, patients and doctors and from the community um, about 100 or so strains of this particular bacterium, Mycobacterium, uh, Mycobacterium obsessus, um, and testing to see whether and how the phages infect those strains. Does one or two phages infect everything? Or is it a different phage? Do you need a different phage for every strain? And so we're trying to work work out that puzzle and the 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 brief sort of you know poorly resolved uh, answer as it stands is that there is clearly enormous variation um most of the strains are sensitive to different types of phages and different sort of combinations um and so that's of interest to us because that's essentially telling us something about the dynamics between the phage and the bacterium and how it 
is driving the evolution of both the phages and the bacteria. So that brings us to our sort of basic uh, science kind of question, what determines why some phages infect some strains and not others? Um, and if we could understand that, maybe we would learn more about things like restriction enzymes and CRISPR-Cas systems and other mechanisms that influence that process. And at the same time, we hope to be able to advance the cause of actually having phages, um, which can then be used to treat other patients, um, probably initially on a case-by-case study. Um, and if we can advance what we know about which phages are useful and how many of the strains might be attacked by those phages, um, perhaps we could then move that into uh, a small clinical trial so that we could understand a broader utility and then begin to understand and to study the basics. If you're going to treat people, what's the dosage? How, how much do you give? How often do you give it? What happens to it when you give it to a patient? How long do you have to treat a patient for? Is it better to treat with antibiotics in combination or without? Do you need two phages or three phages? Or is one really good phage just as good as three? Because we don't, we don't know and we speculate about that. But we think the next few years will be a, a really a really good opportunity to try to get a handle on some of those um, enigmatic and sort of difficult parameters and maybe get a foothold in what I think is a really a sort of interesting area of science in an area with potential medical utility. Yeah, I wonder in order to treat certain conditions, we'll have to look at, you know, our body, let's say I'm sick with something, you know, I, I'll have to look at, let's say my blood markers, my microbiome, my <laughs> virome, the phageome of my microbiome to really get a complete picture of what's going on, but then how to make sense of it all and all those interactions and dynamics. It has the, you know, I, I get the feeling I need like a supercomputer to analyze all this stuff which is amazing, but, um, but yet we live, and yet we, uh, we could be healthy for many, many, many years, and I don't know how all that happens. Do you have any idea if you look at, now if you step back and look at yourself or you know, another person or a microscopic organism and you think, how is this all coordinated? Yeah, I think that, um, um, you know, this, I, I, mean, I, I, don't have, I don't have a thoughtful sort of answer to it, except I think that um, as we look around us in the environments that we live and the, the ecologies um, within us and beyond, they're incredibly complicated. You've got large numbers of different types of organisms, bacteria, phages, the protists and the protozoans and everything else. And of course, our human cells and, and other animal cells, everything is interacting with each other. And they do so in a mostly kind of harmonious way, but not in any single, single sort of solution. Um, you know, nature is such a, um, you know, operates in such a way that, 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 that the, dyna- the dynamics, I think, are complex so that you don't always have winners, but you have communities that find ways to coexist. And so, nature at the ecological level is also incredibly you know creative um but in a way which in the longer term uh, i think has proven to be you know incredible incredibly sort of robust and, and pretty resilient mm. well very good graham what's the best way to get in touch and find out more about your work um uh, there's uh, there's lots of um resources i think on the on the uh 
on the internet on bacteriophages and on the kinds of work that we've that we've done. Um, we have a that there is a, a, a we have a website at uh, I think it's just hatful.org um, with some information about what we do. Um, uh, it's uh, one of the advantages of having a somewhat relatively uncommon name uh, like Hatful is that you can do you can do searches for um, uh, in the public databases to look up um, uh, scientific papers, for example. Um, and so, and if you Google, there's various other introductory videos and uh, my email address is available online and, and uh, I can always be contacted uh, that way too. Very good. Man, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's uh, super fascinating, the stuff you're working on. So I appreciate you being here. Well, nice talking to you. And uh, I, I hope you're your, your, your listeners enjoy the wonderful world of uh, bacteriophages. Um, we've, you know, we've had many students involved over the years uh, at, at, in, in programs that we helped to run, uh, isolating and characterizing bacteriophages. It's a relatively simple thing to do. Students get to go out and isolate a new phage and to give it a name and to characterize it and have that then become part of the collection and part of the scientific record. Some of those turn out to be incredibly useful, including things we use therapeutically. So if any oh, wow. of your listeners get really kind of fired up and they want to go and isolate their own new virus, um, it's easy to do. Um, get in contact with your local institution and your local researchers that study phages, and I'm sure they can help you do it. Very good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.